Number seven media production. Hey! Welcome to the Pot of Gold podcast series where we focus on people and businesses within the mining industry with the objective to extract nuggets of wisdom and practical business advice. I'm your host, Jacques Besson. If you're keen to listen to some more SME-focused podcast uh, series, check out Biz Crush. And if Afrikaans is your thing, check out Clipcoish, which focuses on Afrikaans SMEs. Paul Higgins' ability to see possibilities and make things work has been key in establishing Bingo as an industry standard in predictive maintenance. Originally from Queensland, Australia, Paul completed an MSc in Engineering Management in Missouri, USA, before spending a number of years with Clorox in California, leading maintenance improvement efforts at 34 manufacturing facilities worldwide. Returning down under 94, he joined Dingo Software, where he swiftly introduced an innovative approach to mining maintenance that dramatically increases operational efficiency and saves millions of dollars by proactively caring for equipment. As Paul quips, it takes some sort of a genius to believe in the unknown. Thank you so much for your time. It's uh, it's it's so nice. I think it's the first time in three years I've, I'm uh, I, I'm having an interview with someone in in Australia. Excellent. Well, I'm glad uh, to be that person, Jacques. Thanks for <laughs> thanks for picking me. So tell us a bit more about yourself, Paul. Where where are you currently based? Um, you know, and and the story. Where did it all start? You know, your personal journey to where you're sitting uh, in in your office today. Okay. So I was born in Brisbane, Australia, uh, went to school here, went to university uh, and did uh, undergraduate uh, civil engineering. I was pretty good at maths and science. Uh, my father had travelled to the US in his uh, early years and had told us many stories about the, 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 that great nation. So I followed in his footsteps and soon after graduating, uh, went to the United States to do my master's degree in, in uh, computer uh, science, well, with an engineering focus, sort of like an MBA for engineers. Wait, wait, which uh, city, Paul? Uh, that was in Rolla, Missouri, the Missouri School of Mines, as it was uh, known then. It's now um the uh missouri uh, school of science and technology a good uh, very engineering focused school in the middle of the state of missouri it's the uh one place i think i could afford to go to because uh, i didn't have much money <laughs> so uh and uh, i worked uh to pay for my master's degree for a local company based there uh which uh, I was at a plant making uh, charcoal briquettes of all things for barbecuing. Where, where's Weber based, by the way? Sorry to interrupt you. Where's Weber? Are they? They're not based down there. I'm not 100 percent sure where Weber is based. Uh, the, we made the the black bricks that went inside a Weber. That's why. That's why I'm just thinking it should be. This should it should be related. But anyway. <laughs> Uh, yes, well, I, you know, we love our Webbers now as a result. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I did my master's thesis actually for this company uh, and I, I suppose it was during that time at, in my master's degree that uh, seeds were planted uh, uh, for what I now know that I was a, an am an entrepreneur at heart. One of the classes that I took the way the format was that uh, the lecturer would do a theory lecture one and we had two lectures a week and the first was some theory and then the second was simply he would bring in a past student or an associate of his who ran a business and I used to look forward to those classes more than any others when I'd hear the stories I just realized that that's what I wanted to do so I lived in the U.S. for uh, six years. Wow! Uh, in during that period, three years at um, in Missouri, and then my wife and I, uh, or my girlfriend then at the time, and I got married. 
Was she was she an American? No, no, she's she was originally uh, and is from Australia as well, country girl actually. Uh, so she moved over to the US, also did uh, a master's degree in computer science, and actually she got a job in uh, the Bay Area of San Francisco, Silicon Valley, mm. and so we both moved with um, our respective businesses out to the Bay Area, and that's when. For three years, we were immersed in the in the tech culture out there. So, just uh, I just want to touch on. Sorry, I'm going to interrupt you quite a lot because I, I, I'm a, I'm curious. So, so I want to take it two steps back, right? And you, you touched on culture, uh, and your dad obviously had this love affair with with the states. How does the Australian culture compare to the American culture? And an example, us as South Africans, especially Afrikaners, we can, you know, we we grew up with American television and that had a huge impact on how we see and feel about America, for example. Yes. Well, a couple of things uh, that have affected the way from that I perceive America from a, a business perspective is that firstly they they do see uh, Australians, South Africans, uh, uh, you know, people from the UK. Uh, they they have a real respect for the education of uh, those countries. So they're very open minded about integrating the thinking and ideas that uh, people bring from other countries into their uh, industries and so forth. So we were we've been welcomed with open arms by uh, the the US mining companies, which has been fantastic. Mm. Uh, they're also very, very highly specialised, whereas we tend to be more generalist. Uh, I've spoken about this many times with many Americans. For example, in our military where a maintenance technician on a fighter aircraft may look after two-thirds of the entire jet. In the US, they would have specialists that just look after the brakes. I, I met a guy in New York who had only ever marketed to the, the boroughs, borough of the Bronx in New York because that was a big enough market for somebody to spend their entire life in. Whereas in Australia, uh, we're a relatively small market of, you know, 25 million people. So we have to be generalists to survive in business. One of our very uh, successful entrepreneurs, uh, Richard Pratt, in Australia says if you can survive in Australia... Uh, you can make it elsewhere in the world because it's pretty tough business conditions here. Time for a Did You Know insert. At 18 years of age, Polish-born Richard Pratt was juggling, studying, acting and working as a salesman for Visiboard, the family business in Melbourne. Following brief theatre stints in London and New York, he returned home to take over the business following his father's passing. Under Pratt's direction, Busyboard expanded from a suburban factory to plants across the Pacific and the USA, becoming one of the world's largest paper, packaging and recycling companies. Pratt also championed corporate philanthropy, and through the Pratt Foundation, the family has annually donated over $10 million to charity and causes like medical research, social and cultural developments, arts, education and the environment. Because it's so, the market is much smaller and everybody is knows a little bit about everything. Correct. So I take it the fact that the Americans can afford to be so specialist is, is again, comes, it boils down to the size of the market. Exactly. Exactly. Every Everything is, uh, I mean, if, if you just look at the numbers, uh, they're about 20 to 30 times, you know, the size of the market for everything. Mm. Uh, so... As a result, the other thing is that where I think that there's a service orientation in the US, having lived there in total for 14 years, when we did move back on 
twice. We were there for sort of two tours, the first six years, the second eight. When we moved back to Australia, we recognised that the service levels that we were used to in the US just simply were not here in in Australia. It took, uh, you know, weeks to get internet connections, whereas in the US it would be done on the phone. Uh, you'd go to a restaurant and wait for 10 minutes before anyone even showed up, mm. whereas in the US, you know, they, they pounce on you straight away because they're working for tips. So uh, that's been a, a big difference. And honestly, we've always tried in our business to incorporate the the best of both worlds because the technologies and uh, that companies outside the U.S., have to put together, have to be very robust because they need to work in tough environments without a lot of uh, support. Mm. In the mining industry, if you break a piece of equipment in Perth or, you know, in Port Hedland, uh, it takes might take three months to get that from Chicago, uh, the Caterpillar uh, factory, whereas if you're in mine in... Illinois, you know, that that might be on a truck the next day. Mm. So it's a geographical advantage, this massive, massive cake together. And 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 how does the the Australian your day-to-day culture? How does that are you do you uh, are you more British in a way? Um or more how what do you I guess which cultures appeal more if you look at entertainment for example or even television? It's really interesting that you ask that question because I have some very close friends that when they came to Australia, their comment was just how British we were. <laughs> so I, I'd i like to, my own personal family has close connections to the US and I feel like we are, but I, I, I do have to say that our country is very you know we're a British colony, so uh, we, you know, we're we're very closely aligned, and many of our traditions align with uh, Britain. I mean, you know, the there's the cricket is uh, happening in in Brisbane. Oh, it just happened over I the weekend. Con- congratulations, so, by the way. <laughs> uh, thank you. Uh, I don't. I didn't see much cricket when I lived in the US. Put it that way. <laughs> no, that's a, but that's what baseball is for, right? <laughs> exactly. I never could get into baseball, but so so uh, Missouri to Silicon Valley. So was that a culture shock? Oh, most definitely. I I had to say, I it's interesting because the three places I've lived was Missouri, uh, Sam, Northern California, and then the second uh, tour, which was eight years, we lived in Colorado. So Missouri was very uh, conservative. Uh, I, as a student, you know, I had uh, colleagues of mine, fellow students that would bring their Bible to McDonald's and read passages uh, from the Bible before we ate. Really? Uh, Then I'd moved to uh, Northern California and I was reprimanded by making some jokes that weren't, you know, politically sensitive uh, (laughs) Uh, and and made some assumptions there, you know, about uh, uh, back in the nineties. Um, uh, it, it's it's a very progressive place. So then I would say Colorado, which is physically located about halfway between Missouri and uh, the the West Coast, is ironically about in the middle. It's slightly more conservative than uh, it's than the the West Coast, but it's more liberal than uh, than Missouri. So it was a nice it was a nice sort of blend. Don't they have a cricket and a rugby team, Colorado? Uh, they certainly have a rugby team. In fact, one of my friends, uh, a South African, um, was was heavily involved in uh, getting the first rugby program up and running and a, and a stadium um, built. Uh, it, I think it was Fort Collins, uh, just for rugby. So yes, they have an act, active rugby program. Okay, okay. So Silicon Valley, um, again, I would imagine the op- entrepreneurial culture is just thick in the air, 
and you you the, you guys both uh, at that stage your day jobs moved you there so what happened there yeah so my wife worked for uh, a company that was eventually acquired by computer associates so she was in uh, very much in the front lines doing uh, tech support for um, a database company that had you know large clients like NASA and so forth uh, I was working for the, the multinational uh, consumer products company, but my area of uh, that I was responsible for was maintenance. We had 34 factories, mainly in the US, but also throughout the Middle East and Latin America, and I was uh, responsible for implementing a, a maintenance system software at all of those locations and I suppose it was that was uh, for me that was on the technology side uh, I was seeing what was happening around me at the time uh, Steve Jobs was you know living in the Bay Area at that time and had been kicked out of Apple and started Next uh, the, all the database Larry Ellison had started Oracle so there was this tremendous energy and a lot of our friends were directly involved in it Wow. So I felt and I have always been uh, drawn to technology. So when I uh, decided, we decided to leave San Francisco in uh, 1993 and move home because we didn't want to start a family in, in that location. We wanted to be around our own uh, family back in Australia. So we moved back and... So I pulled the pin on my uh, job and I thought to myself, well, now's the time to start a, uh, a business. Um, I, by that stage, I was convinced that I wanted to do that. Uh, and it was a, it was a good opportunity. Uh, I, I didn't have anything to go to in Australia. I, couldn't, I didn't want to transfer. My wife did, so we had some income from her job, which was great. And that enabled uh, us to uh, take the take the plunge and get involved in a, you know, a, a fledgling business. So I, I take it the the whole digital angle was that Silicon Valley driven, in your mind? Oh yes, I, I was exposed regularly. Uh, as I said, most of our most of our friends were working in technology for either startups or technology companies in the Bay Area, mm. and. They, uh, there were just hundreds of them. You would just drive around and and uh, see the names on the buildings. You know, Apple, Hewlett Packard, Oracle, Sun Microsystems. So mm. they're all just inspirational all in the valley. And then and then the startups was what fascinated me. These companies that were three people and you know a couple of uh, pizzas and and beers on Friday afternoon. That was that was the part that really. Uh, appealed to me because I realised all those ones with the names on the building they they had started somewhere and mm. with a couple of people usually. So what? So this is actually a, a, it's fascinating, you know. So you, you back in, in at home starting from scratch. Where did you start? What was what? I found um, a couple of guys uh, that were working in an area. They were working basically do, doing. Uh, almost bespoke databases based on a database platform called FoxPro uh, back back in then. And so the, their business model was you come to them with a problem, they would scope out a little database product for you, and then they had a few developers that would build it. Well, when I talked to these guys, I, I met them actually uh, through... Well, that's a that's a too long a story, but um, I I met them uh, and spoke to them, and and I found the the concept fascinating because they were working with a lot of larger industrial customers, similar to what I had been doing in my work with uh, with Clorox, the multinational that I was working for. So I thought, well, I know these customers are willing to pay good money for improvement to their business. And then when I looked at what they'd done, I noticed that five uh, companies had paid them uh, 
to do a similar database project and it was to collect oil analysis information from heavy machinery in mining and try and or write some tools to help a put it in one place and b interpret the data mm. so i immediately having been uh, working in preventive maintenance for three years with uh, with Clorox, where things were fixed and maintained on a fixed schedule, a time-based schedule, when I saw this oil uh, analysis, um, which is now, of course, called condition monitoring, I thought, wow, that is a, such a more advanced way of doing maintenance based on the condition of the equipment as opposed to just doing it on a time interval, I thought that's the future and that's when I jumped in, uh, boots and all. So there was two two guys who started had started the business. I came in as the third party uh, and really took the business in a different direction, focused entirely on the condition uh, monitoring that I saw the uh, potential for. And that, that, that led to one of the other uh, parties deciding that that wasn't for them. So they moved on rather quickly. Uh, and then um, shortly, you know, a couple of years later, the, the third, uh, the second person um, also left amicably. I should say both of those were amicable. I'm still uh, in touch with both those people. Mm-hmm. How, how, if, if, if you, um, I mean, that's fascinating. So if you can maybe one or two business lessons, I think my first question about, you know, joining two others in a, in a business that already had traction. And then of course, what, what's, uh, how do you structure that? How did you structure that? How do you, uh, and of course them leaving, how did they exit? I mean, what are the lessons that, uh, what, what, what should you do and what should you not do? Yeah, look, uh, it's a great question and uh for (laughs) i would would honestly say uh most of the time unless you absolutely need to uh and there are some very good examples of where um the uh, partnerships work i think the smaller the number of people that are involved the better uh at, at the and i'm talking about at the fundamental ownership level um but you do see the great stories of like the uh, Steve Jobs being the sales and marketing, and then uh, Wozniak being the kind of the guy uh, behind the scenes. That that's that's a good setup, generally speaking. Uh, and then on the over the years, and Jacques, this is our thirtieth year in business, so wow. I've had uh, a number of uh, people, shareholders come and go. And I would say the overall lesson there is treat people as fairly as you as you can. Imagine that you're on the other side of the transaction, as hard as that is to do, and just say, you know, the, nobody's going to get the perfect deal that they want, but nobody should walk away feeling like I've, I've actually had some deals where I thought at the time, wow, I, you know, got a really favourable deal there and it turned out in the long run it, it wasn't as good as what I thought and it backfired. So I think the, the best deals, uh, our wise legal counsel tell us the best deals are the ones where both far- parties feel like they got you know, a little bit uh, almost the deal that they wanted, but not quite. You've got to you've got to feel like there's a little bit of that tension there for it to be good. So we've always had uh, uh, predefined exits where in our shareholders agreements where you know there was a, an agreed mechanism for uh, somebody departing and and what would be paid and a fair process for doing that. So I think that's. Uh, wise if you don't have a shareholders agreement you're you're in uh you're going to have real problems you're looking you're looking for trouble 
Yes. I always call it selective. It's a selective memory loss if you don't have a shareholder agreement. <laughs> yes, <laughs> unfortunately, uh, that never works out well. So you ended up driving this business. So what happened next? Uh, look, I, I guess it, if I think about the next significant milestone, we developed uh, some, we, we actually took the, we eliminated all of the bespoke consulting work and we focused entirely on the condition-based uh, maintenance work. We did a bit of consulting, maintenance consulting, but primarily one product. So we, we brought bought those code sets uh, that were amongst five or six different companies. We got their agreement to put them all into one uh, code set and uh, for us to transfer the intellectual property back to Dingo, which was quite a, a, uh, a milestone. So then we then we were off to the races. We had our own product uh, and we were able to sell it. So in '95, I, uh, uh, having uh, just returned from the US, uh, I and relocating to Brisbane, I turned around and went back over there um, and helped launch Dingo in the US. Um, I, I didn't go full time. I was just there for a few months, and we we got our first customers of Dingo uh, over in. In the US, so that was good. We started building a little team over there, uh, and then the next significant milestone was that the year two thousand uh, came about. And there were a couple of key things that happened there. Firstly, uh, all of the uh, Y two K compliance issues came about, so uh, we we had to do a lot of work on our software to make sure it was Y2K compliant. And then the second thing that was going on at that time was that dot-com bubble. Mm. So everyone was rushing to the internet and how you could become a technology company and a a dot-com company. And there was a lot of, uh, uh, in, in the larger corporations in uh, around the world many of them actually started to allocate funds in their from their businesses to even um, traditional companies were allocating money so that they could get a sort of a dot com uh, exposure to their business so we were lucky enough to uh, land uh, an investment from Conoco which was an oil company that were using our software and some of their with some of their mining customers they invested and bought a 10% share of uh, of dingo so that fueled our um, software development effort for several years it was like a, a bit of a, quite a bit of uh, investment capital and so we developed a a large uh, team of developers to convert our software from pc uh, based software running on a desktop computer to client server. And so that, in essence, was our move to the cloud uh, before it was called the cloud. So two questions. The first one is, how did you come up with the Dingo and why Dingo? <laughs> the good, the good uh, most, most names that are chosen by customers are lasting. So... Uh, we didn't actually come up with the name. The customers did. Really? I mentioned that we, we developed uh, our software based on the Fox Pro uh, yes. database platform. Well, back then, the only logo that you got on your desktop was the logo of the underlying database. And the logo for Fox Pro was a fox's head. Mm. And so when our customers were using that software out in the mines in central Queensland and Australia, they didn't know it was a fox. They thought it was what they saw outside their windows of the mines, which was a dingo. So they actually just called it the dingo software. Ah, okay. That's that's fascinating. Uh, now, and the second question, pitching tips. 
I mean, how did you land that first investment or that big investment? Well, we 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 did a we put together a um, you know a forecast of where we thought we could take the company. We put a little uh, information memorandum together, and I started pitching at all of the events that were going on at the time. They in Brisbane there were these get-togethers where you wore a different coloured badge depending on whether you wanted money, uh, speed dating sessions, you know, wow, um, really? whether you wanted money or whether you had money. There weren't too many with the had money, by the way. Um, <laughs> uh, there were, we spoke to investment banks, we, you know, we spoke to a lot of different, and and because we were actually dealing with Conoco um, at that stage over in the US, I said to our colleagues there, I said, hey, uh, would you guys be interested in investing in Dingo? And that got a, a positive response. So the next thing I knew, I was over uh, in Houston pitching to the head of their uh, lubricants division and we, uh, we struck a deal. Time for a did you know insert. Conoco Oil is a Shell Oil gasoline and diesel fuel wholesale distributor and transportation company supplying both Shell branded and unbranded fuels. As a privately owned business, Conoco Oil employs over 500 professional personnel and specializes in fuel transportation, fuel supply and rebranding. Conoco Oil delivers and sells in excess of 359 million gallons of fuel annually and also distributes a wide range of Chevron and total branded lubricants and Wicks and Donaldson filters. The company has grown through buying and selling retail locations, converting facilities into sea stores, adding car washes and developing new properties from the ground up. That's, a, that's a, it's fascinating. So it's almost like uh, the answer was in your backyard. We didn't realize it at, in the beginning. Exactly. So we, we, it, it was a, it was, it was an interesting time because there weren't, uh, we weren't getting a lot of yeses, but we uh, uh, certainly, I think that Conoco saw a strategic angle uh, because they were the dominant lubricant supplier in North America. I think they still are. And they, they wanted to uh, some exclusivity over our technology and they, mm. uh, they got that. So it's, 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 that's fascinating because it's, it's not, it's the only way you can secure that exclusivity in, in many ways. And I mean, and that is advice for, for the listeners out there that that's, it's a great way to pitch to your potential investor or customer for that matter. It's that exclusivity that's otherwise not, not doable. They wanted to keep other big lubricants companies from having the same technology. So mm-hmm. they, uh, they took a position in, in our business, which was, uh, which was good. So now you have the team in, in the States. You've got an office in Brisbane. How does this thing evolve? The next big, uh, we, we, we had a, a number of different uh, ideas. I suppose we tried a lot of different things. Uh, and then we did a strategic planning session in, uh, I moved back. When we got the Conoco uh, investment, I was uh, going back to the States so frequently that um, I said to my wife, look, I think we should move there uh, for a year and I'll establish a team over there and then we can, then we'll come home. Uh, so we went, we went there in uh, at the very end of uh, 1999 um, and uh, just straight after we got the investment um, and uh, <laughs> I mean, Things never never uh, go to plan, right? So I see. I see this bubble. This bubble. It's 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 on its way uh, to burst, right? Yes. Well, we we ended up staying eight years. Oh my uh, goodness! Denver, All right. <laughs> Denver, Denver seem is like a second home to me. We have very good friends there, and my daughter was born there. Um, so uh, we did a lot with um, with with Conoco for a while. Then um, as Things happened. They were they were acquired. Conoco was acquired by Phillips uh, to become Conoco Phillips, and unfortunately, that that meant that the uh, the whole premise for what Conoco uh, had invested in 
uh, changed dramatically. And and um, this is another lesson learned, I suppose, that uh, when you're dealing with a big gorilla like a Fortune 500 company, you know, you 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 don't expect to have any influence on their strategy. As soon as they decide to change and go in a different direction, you know, they're going. You just you just pulled along. Yeah, we 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 well, in fact, we got left behind. They they had no interest in. Um, uh, the customer intimate approach that Conoco uh, did with their customers. They they were a volume-focused uh, mm. company, a very good one too, uh, but they had a clear strategy and it was just out of alignment. So we tried a number of different things and then uh, some of which gained some traction. And we we had always believed in, uh, you know, getting the team together and doing some strategic planning. We booked a uh, place up in the mountains and went away for three days and, one of uh, a long-term employee asked a couple of very brave questions uh, that nobody else was prepared to about what should should and shouldn't we be working on. And, you know, I think what we concluded then was that we were spread too thin, we had too many different initiatives, whereas one particular area uh, was our bread and butter, and that was helping mining customers to... Uh, extend the life of their big uh, assets and also to reduce them breaking down. So uh, we, in essence, uh, decided to focus on that and and uh, that was uh, two-thirds of our revenue. So we, uh, but the other third, uh, we decided um, that we needed to stop doing so that was t- that was a very very tough decision. I mean, that's literally it's saying no to money in the bank. Yes, uh, I'm very glad we did it, but at the time it seemed like crazy. Really? Uh, however, it, that that enabled us to focus, and we and we doubled down on mining and said, okay, we we are going to 100 focus on uh, the mining customers. And so soon after that, we replace that revenue entirely, the stuff that we gave up with, with a couple of major contracts where we decided to offer a much more holistic offering uh, to uh, our customers. And and that was the start of uh, what we've seen as a very strong uh, march towards what are now known as remote operation centres or uh, you know, control rooms, remote um, maintenance centres, where the expertise that is being uh, used and uh, uh, is in a central location, and the experts are there, and that and they serve multiple mining locations. I know Anglo is um, a big uh, South African uh, company. There. They're certainly embracing this model. I'm sure others are. Yeah. Certainly the ones in North America and, and Australia and Canada are. And we were right on the front lines of that. We were we sort of pioneered bringing people in to our Denver office to serve customers remotely in 2005. That was the first time we did that. I mean, you were just so ahead of the curve. Were there, were there other industries I always like to to ask the question you know best practice out there across industries who was there anybody that that stood out that was another five years ahead of you guys or who led that that whole or was it pretty much on par across the industries no i think uh there were other in there were others that were starting to experiment with those uh sorts of models um the medical field I do remember stories about uh, doctors in New York uh, reviewing x-rays that had been done in other countries, you know, and doing it overnight so that they'd be ready for the doctors uh, in in the first country in the morning. So we were starting to, and we've always drawn a lot of parallels from the human medical industry, if you like, or medical practices, we've always looked at the human parallels to, uh, you know, what happens in machinery. Because we can, if you think about oil analysis, for example, which has been a very 
one of our strong suits for a, a, a long amount of time, it's very similar to a blood test for a human being. Hmm. Uh, so, uh, you know, there's there's a lot of parallels there. That's that's, that's fascinating. Um, just before I forget, uh, how long did it take you to replace that third of the income that you gave up? Uh, I would say probably 18 months. Okay. Because we, we, <laughs> we absolutely needed to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Necessity is the mother of invention. So For sure. we actually came up with a, a different uh, and very much more large uh, way of packaging our, our software and services as a, as a complete solution. And so we were able to redeploy some of our team into into those. What, what's fascinating with with uh, you guys, uh, you know, uh, looking at the medical side of things or medi- medical technology, isn't that the the fastest developing technology? Um, I think was it Moore's law that said that the chip will double in, in capacity every eighteen months. I think the medical technology is that every twelve months is doubling in capacity or something like that. Well, certainly there's a lot of work in that field. Uh, everyone cares about health. Uh, not sure that it's um, as uh, as successful. I just saw something uh, recently that in the United States, the average life expectancy actually declined for the first time in, in, a, in decades uh, and really? dropped by from 81 years to 79 years. So hmm. um, there's there's a lot of, there's a lot, while there's a lot of investment in the medical space, I, I, I'm i not sure it's always as effective as uh, as in other industries, but certainly there is a, a huge investments in, in healthcare uh, for sure globally. Yeah, I think I think part of the problem is that it's called fast food chains, right? So anyway, but that, that's a that's a story for another day. Um, so Denver now again, Colorado. Uh, where's the the mining capital of 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 the states? Or again, it's just so massive. Is it across the board? No, well, it, it is it is Denver, um, uh-huh. and that was one of the reasons for our selection of that as our. Headquarters. We actually started the business in uh, Missouri because I had gone to college there, as they call university, and yeah. uh, then we moved up to St. Louis. Uh, there were a couple. Of, there was uh, a couple of customers there in in St. Louis, but the real action in mining is uh, Nevada, Wyoming. Colorado, New Mexico. That's where a lot of the larger scale mines are. So if you want to be able to access those customers, you know, the the, the place to be is Denver. And so we moved, we moved out there and there's a lot of um, technology companies in mining. Uh, there were certainly a lot of Australian uh, uh, other Aussie companies there uh, doing the same. So that's been a fantastic location for us. Plus, it's physically beautiful. It's a very outdoorsy place. You know, you've got uh, the you know the Rocky Mountains and skiing, and in summer, you know, fishing. And it's a very outdoorsy place. Very, very similar to Australia, just with a completely different weather. But you know, everyone's uh, everyone loves their outdoors: biking, mountain biking, hiking. Uh, running, you know, there's there's so much to do there. We found found it a very easy place to attract good staff, uh, and a lot of the companies, a lot of our customers were had a, a presence there in in Denver. So let's let's uh, maybe if we can give us a case study uh, of Dingo in action. Anything that jumps out of, of how your uh, software solution is used or the technology is, is, is used? So our, I'll take it at a, uh, a company level. So um, we have a, uh, a number of gold mining customers who have multiple mines in, uh, say, the Western United States. Uh, 
So we a, a typical case study would be we we would go to them uh, and say, can you share with us some of your historical data on the performance of your assets? We would then go and and look at that, actually put a quite a bit of it into our into our database. And then we would come back and say, well, here are some examples where you've had some equipment that has failed prematurely, it hasn't reached its budgeted life, and here is our software that we and our processes, and we here's a couple of very specific examples where we can see in the data that had that information been in our software and our program, we would have detected that ahead of time and, you know, that would have resulted in that machine not failing or being repaired uh, in a less expensive manner. I mean, a catastrophic failure, for example, when an engine blows up is might cost a mining company $600,000, whereas a a repair ahead of time may cost $50,000. So we we use the customer's data to show them where the opportunities are. Now, that requires a lot of faith on their part and openness. You know, a lot of times people, and it's human nature, we don't like to show our, uh, our faults or failings. So... But you know, we—it's nobody's fault or failings. It's—it's it's just simply that there are sometimes better ways to do things, and we—we uh, we have developed in conjunction with a lot of good customers, I might add, some ways to do that. So that—that that tends to get uh, uh, attention and and some uh, traction. Is that—is that free? Do you offer that for free? No, no. Uh, we found we we tried that. And unless the customer has skin in the game, we've found that they don't allocate the resources to do it properly. Mm. And, Jacques, we've just uh, uh, done this very exercise with, uh, with uh, a mine in, uh, in South Africa as well. So um, that has now, we, we'd call that a pilot program to go through and sort of show the way, if you like, like a pilot boat. Um, and, then, and then we say, okay, Here's the information. What do you want to do now? And we can figure a longer-term solution uh, for the customer, depending is, on what I've learned. So fear sounds like a big obstacle. What I mean by fear, and I mean that's something we've picked up here in, in, in the South African market, is the, the fact that either the person you're talking to understands that you're going to make them look better, or they fear that that they think they uh, if, if if they're going to get caught out or or or, or create the impression that they didn't do their job. How do, you, how do you get around that? How do you pitch that? Or is that just, it's, it's, I guess, the luck of the draw of the personality you're dealing with? Oh, look, we spend a fair bit of time talking about that specific issue. Um, and, uh, you know, our core values as a, as a business over 30 years, um, one of them is, um, is teamwork. So, and that goes beyond... Uh, just ourselves. In 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 many cases, it means teaming with our customers. So we have a pretty open and honest conversation uh, as soon as possible uh, with people and say, "Look, we're not we're not here to show you up. I mean, what's that going to do for anyone? Mm. It, we we might be able to help you uh, if if you are open and honest and it's it really is getting that message through to the senior people that uh, they don't get a, you know, a, a stick to, to, to belt the troops. That, that's, that, that always backfires. And, and to be honest, I think most senior managers very much understand that. You know, they, they, they realise that um, if they really want to get things done, it's going to be through their people as well. So they're looking for uh, uh, partnerships and, and I suppose now that we've been around for 30 years, we've got some good examples of where we have partnered with companies in the mining industry 
for decades. Mm. So we we do have some runs on the board uh, as to longer term relationships, and I think that helps. It's easier to have them maybe talk to a couple of uh, you know longer term customers and hear hear the stories directly from them. Mm. I mean, we uh, don't uh, get it hundred percent right, but uh, and we make mistakes, but um, uh, I think being open and honest about that is is the way to go and 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 uh, and setting expectations that hey look we you know we'll probably go through some white water together in the relationship uh, but we will come out the other side and here's how we've done that with others mm. so uh, examples of of uh, successful long term relationships well uh we're uh, we're very fortunate to um uh have a over 20-year partnership with um, Newmont, which is the largest uh, gold mining company in the world. Uh, and, in fact, they have two operations in uh, in Ghana that we support along with the, the great team from Newmont there. Uh, we have uh, a number of that's, – that's honestly probably our longest-term relationship. We have many in the, you know, 10 to uh, 10 to 15 – year and and some in five and some in one so uh, uh anglo has been a very long-term customer of ours too tech coal in canada um core mining yeah so we we've got a uh, a number of uh really great relationships that we're uh, that we're proud of uh, partnerships uh, so ser- seriously big names. Um, the, I mean, the, you mentioned obviously focusing on on gold mines again. Was was is is that a strategic deliberately sticking with gold mines? Going back to that day in, in Colorado when you said, "Listen, um, we're going to cut a third of our business," or uh, do you see opportunities across a uh, different type of mining? Oh, I, I would say um, what Dingo has become our, our niche, if you like, of expertise is in um, mobile mining equipment. Now, we, we also add value to fixed plant and underground mining equipment, but our, our real strong suit is surface mining equipment, big trucks, big excavators, uh, moving a lot, things that move a lot of dirt, drag lines, shovels, uh, drills, all of the things that you see in a big surface mining operation. So in actual fact, we started in the uh, metallurgical coal market in Queensland. Uh, Not sure if you're aware of that, Jacques, but I mean, Queensland is is like the metallurgical coal uh, capital of, of the world. And we have a lot of large surface mining operations in Queensland, so naturally they were our, among our first customers. When when you get over to uh, the US, there's not there's, there were coal operations in Wyoming that were uh, and and are our customers. Uh, then uh, surface mining is the way that a lot of the gold is mined in uh, in Nevada and Arizona and so forth. So that was a natural fit for us, and now that's extended into. Latin America and uh, South Africa, and other parts of the world. So that's our Brett. That's our real uh, wheelhouse. Mm-mm-mm. So you mentioned. I mean, COVID turned everything is still turning everything on its head. Um, big changes that happen in the business. So if we can just elaborate, you know, uh, and, and and focus on that. And 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 what does the future look like? So, well, COVID. Our first reaction was, how can we help our customers? A lot of them were uh, very people-intensive and uh, they were, you know, they were vulnerable, um, I guess. Uh, A lot of, if if you can't have your maintenance people showing up on site but you still want to keep running uh, and some of your supply chains are being stressed, the, the, in actual fact, what we were doing for those customers became more important, you know, reducing the risk of breakdowns and extending the life of their assets. So 
in in actual fact, what we did to our largest and long-term customers, we offered them uh, enhanced services to what we were doing at no additional cost to them. Sure. And that was well-received. We were and deliver our services um, in a combination of on-site and off-site. We were obviously not able to deliver those services uh, on-site, so we we pivoted to a remote implementation model for customers that still wanted to proceed, some that were uh, planning on implementing a conditioned-based way of maintaining their equipment, and uh, we were successful uh, with that. We had, we've done a number of completely remote implementations uh, where we teamed with our customers and did everything over um, uh, Teams and Zoom and so forth. So uh, that was remarkably successful, I'd, I would have to say. And I suppose it comes from the fact that we had a lot of experience of doing it on site. We knew what to do. We had very well-documented procedures and our team is very good at it. We were able to say, okay, well, this is the stuff that we would normally do in partnership on site, but you guys are going to have to do that. Are you comfortable with it? Uh, And, you know, if they were, then we could proceed. And the if you think about the premise of delivering services remotely that we started in 2005, that actually came to the forefront (laughs) during COVID because that was, the, in a lot of cases, the only way that those services could be provided. So uh, in actual fact, we grew uh, through COVID. Do you see this as a new way of doing business uh, moving forward and not just a remedy for COVID? I I think that there are going to be changes that uh, in in the way business is done that we'll, we won't go back to pre-COVID. I think there's going to be a, a much higher premium on travel uh, because of the risks and costs associated with it and the number of ways that we've all discovered that we can get things done without having to travel. There are some things that you cannot do without travelling. It's really hard to build a close relationship with a customer without, you know... Look him in the eye. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. You know, and and a lot of that happens uh, out of formal meetings. So there's some of that that's never going to change. But I think the premium that is rather than jumping on a plane at the drop of a hat to go halfway around the world. That, I don't think that's going to happen any anymore, I think. And, and not expect it, I guess. That's, that's also part of the problem, that expectation that you need to jump on the plane. You're exactly right. So what, what's in store for, for next year or the next five years? Do you, do you, did you have to – were you forced now to, to look at everything differently from a strategic or change your strategic direction or – I mean, obviously, as you said, a very successful year in the way you, you're doing things differently, something you started in 2005. So that's at the forefront now. Are you just going to continue rolling that out or uh, approaching new customers, new markets, or where, where the, the markets, the opportunities? Great question. Uh, so our mining business is, is strong and we uh, are intending uh, to continue our growth there. Uh, we have a, we have a, a strong uh, focus at the moment on on copper as a commodity uh, because most uh, copper, well, the the, the new economy, uh, renewables, um, electric cars, uh, wind turbines, these large, the transition to a renewable economy is going to demand um, a tremendous amount of copper. An electric car has five times a tesla's got five times the copper in it than than a uh, than a toyota uh, so the world needs a lot of copper copper is largely mined 
with open cut uh, mining techniques and the, the, the centroid of copper in the world is Chile. Uh, and so we have a very strong campaign at the moment uh, focused on enabling those customers in those locations. So we've got a Latin American team. Gold is also a, a commodity that's really strong for not only for uh, jewellery but electronics and, uh, and banking. Uh, metallurgical coal is used for steel. It's a, a very strong market and a lot of it is mined uh, again in open cut uh, mines and iron ore is also strong. We're, we're taking a look at some of the uh, other minerals that um, are going to be part of the economy going forward, things like, uh, you know, rare earths and, and uh, lithium and so forth, but those are usually smaller uh, volumes. Uh, so mining uh, is going uh, strong and, and continues to uh, improve. But the big uh, p- big change for Dingo's business, Sharks, is that we this year uh, really entered the defence uh, market for the first time. Uh, it's taken us a long time to get there, but uh, uh, we secured our first uh, serious contracts with the Australian Defence Force this year uh, for um, software. Uh, if you think about a lot of the military hardware that you imagine in a battle situation, tanks, ships, uh, a tank to us is is very similar to a a bulldozer. <laughs> it's got tracks, it's got final yeah. drives, it's got a diesel engine. It's just got a big gun on the top of it instead of a, <laughs> a, a bed. But mechanically, uh, there's a lot of similarities in those assets. Uh, so we think, um, and and uh, the what we're hearing from defence forces, not only in Australia but uh, elsewhere, is that um, whereas they were on the leading edge of technology uh, years ago, they've actually sort of slipped behind a bit now and so they're, they're wanting to catch up by bringing the lessons from the mining industry uh, into uh, into the defence space. So we're at the forefront of that and we're very well positioned. So we've got really uh, strong growth ambitions for our defence business. Really excited about that. Well, that, that is extremely exciting. And 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 Colorado, if, if memory serves me right, got a, got a huge military base there, if I'm not wrong. Yeah, you're exactly right. Uh, in the foothills of the Rocky Mountains are probably all of the major uh, US defence contractors, uh, Raytheon, Lockheed Martin, uh, Morton Thicle, uh, you know, you name it, they're there. Um, and, of course, NORAD, uh, where many of the uh, remote uh, war logistics is done from, is, is in Colorado Springs. Uh, the US Air Force Academy is in Colorado Springs. So, yes, there's a very strong military presence there. And <laughs> a lot of uh, when I was when we were living in Colorado, I used to laugh because um, we'd go to when we first moved into the neighborhood. We went to a party with one of our neighbors, and he and uh, they all introduced themselves as "Yes, we actually are rocket scientists." <laughs> it's, not, yeah, it's not a joke; it's really so. <laughs> it's, uh, I'll tell you a story, and then I'm, I'm going to leave you. The uh, one of my friends in in in, in Sasselberg, uh, yeah, obviously Sassel. I think it's you know it's the only uh, Fortune 500 or South African company on the Fortune 500, and the um, one day he says. Um, he says that it, they've got the highest average um, um, autism rate in the country. And I said, was it because of the dirty air? I mean, that was my ignorant conclusion. He said, no, it's uh, the, the highest concentration of PhDs in the country. Uh, and apparently, this, obviously, the smarter you get, you need to lock these guys in a room by themselves. But uh, I, I found that fascinating that, you know, it, it, it edges on genius edges on 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 you know autism but in any way that but yeah so um the rocket scientists are a 
uh, I guess it's it's quite similar. But anyway, well, well it takes sort of a, a, a special type of genius to believe in uh, the unknown. Um, you know, I mean, one of your countrymen, Elon Musk, uh, one of my favourite. You know, to to um, to watch. I, I bought a Tesla just so I could experience what it it was like, and it's you know. He's. You'd have to look at him and go. Well, you know, is he normal? Um, <laughs> he's certainly. He certainly got something extraordinary uh, in the way that he looks at and solves problems. Um, mm, mm. And you know, he's he's changing the world. So uh, uh, yeah, it it's a it's a positive things from from many perspectives. Paul, it's it's been a fascinating uh, uh, conversation. Thank you so much for your time, especially this time of the year. I think I said everybody is tired and, and ready to go on holiday. So I really appreciate that you. Uh, uh, set uh, time aside, um, and yeah, I just wish you the very best for, for you know for for twenty twenty two. I hope it's it's uh, all these exciting um, plans are realised. Thanks very much, Jacques. I've enjoyed it a lot, and uh, uh, thanks for all your um, great questions. And uh, Merry Christmas to you too. I enjoy the season. I hope you have some uh, uh, time off, and I look forward to uh, hearing um, hearing the the podcast. Only a pleasure, Paul. Thank you so much. Okay, bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast or this episode, please subscribe, leave a review, and share with friends, family, and colleagues. And check out our Facebook page at Pod of Gold for what we're up to. Yeah.